I'm not sure where you get your news source. Um, my, one of my go-to news sources is still uh, the CBC, our friends across the street. It's a free advertising for them. <clears throat> and uh, there are a couple of items this week that really hit me as I was thinking about talking about peace and what that means, making room for peace. First item, of course, is what's going on in Aleppo, Syria. Beautiful, ancient city, almost totally decimated. And if you want to see heartbreak, you can go online, Google images of Aleppo before and after the conflict started. It's awful. Skeletons of buildings are still there. But as you see in this picture, just heaps and heaps of rubble. And I don't know how people are still living there, but they are. And I got thinking about this picture, and I was thinking this represents life for a lot of us, although we may not be living in ruins. Internally, we're a mess. We're destroyed like this. And there is no peace at Christmas time for many of us. Peace in our families, peace in our relationship, peace in our workplace or where, do we, or where we go to school, or even most importantly, just peace inside because there's turmoil and conflict and we cannot sort things out. The Bible says that Jesus came to bring peace at Christmas time. Peace. Now we're not talking about a ceasefire where two angry armies oppose each other and they've got their fingers on the trigger and they're glaring over some little white rag held up by some valiant blue-helmeted UN peacekeepers who are hoping not to get shot in the crossfire. The shalom, the peace that the Bible talks about, is not a cessation of hostility, but it's shalom, which is a beautiful Hebrew word which means just thriving and being well. So when someone says shalom to you, they're not just saying peace out. They're wishing you well. They're wishing that everything that God intends for planet Earth. So it really is a beautiful blessing. The Old Testament prophecies that said, hey, Messiah is coming. Someone is on the way to set the world right talked about this. <clears throat> and there's a prophecy in Isaiah that says, Surely he, the Messiah, took up our infirmities, carried our sorrow. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds were healed. This prophecy hints at what Jesus is going to do for the human race. And you note that the punishment that brought us peace with God was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. There's another prophecy from Micah. Micah 5.2 says that it's the little old little town of Bethlehem that we sang about today. Old little town of Bethlehem, the Messiah is going to be born. Can you imagine predicting your place of birth 700 years before you're actually born? That would take some doing. Go home and think about the odds of that. Anyway, continuing on in Micah chapter 5, this is what it says. He, Messiah, 
will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And he will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. This coming Messiah will rule over the whole earth, and he will bring peace and shalom to the planet. Not the United Nations, not some other intergovernmental organization, not even folks who work for peacekeeping organizations, as well-intentioned as they are and as important as they are in de-escalating violence in the world. Ultimately, only the Messiah will bring peace to our conflict-ridden planet. And of course, we're familiar with that, that spontaneous rock concert in the middle of nowhere to a bunch of nobodies that God delivers in Luke chapter 2. Suddenly, the angels joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. That's the best translation of Luke chapter 2, verse 14, that I can give you. Peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. He promises us his peace. And what does this peace look like? What what are the implications of this peace working out in our lives? Therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Let's do a quick review. All you need to do is watch the CBC News, like I do, and see that there's very little peace on earth. And this peace, all this fighting and strife, ultimately can be traced back to the fact that we are at war with our Creator. We think we can do things better. My do it myself is our motto. Me, myself, and I are our three favorite little household gods. And everyone is in it for themselves, ultimately. That may sound cynical. I'm just being realistic about the state of human nature without God changing us from the inside out. So because we're in this spiritual rebellion against God, all this mess, you just turn on the news and it's just daily streaming. What a mess we are in. But those of us who have responded to God's offer of grace and forgiveness, wow. God has made it possible to do all these arrangements. He's done all the legal arrangements to make us right with him. We just have to say, yes, please save me. Help. What do you need to become a Christian to follow Jesus? Help. Lord, have mercy. Not a bad way to start. Not a bad way to continue in your Christian life either. Lord, have mercy. So Paul says in Romans chapter 5 here, now that we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus has done for us. He is our peace, like Micah said. So because of our faith, God has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Last year, our family was given some tickets to see the Winnipeg Jets, and we had a few, and they were primo tickets right down to the the best seats in the house. They were awesome. Now, we didn't have quite enough tickets for everybody, so I volunteered to go up to the 300s, which is great. You can see the whole rink, 
And if you don't mind nosebleeds, it's great. No, it, it, it was, I was just happy to be there. And I thought, well, after the first period, we'll come down and see how everybody's doing, and maybe someone will take pity on me and we'll swap. Well, we're chatting up with someone on the boundaries of this primo seating section, someone in charge, and basically, he looks around, lifts the rope, and says, come on in, Rick, don't tell anybody I said this. So I'm not disclosing any names, okay? But all of a sudden, I was brought into this place of undeserved privilege. I had a ticket for the 300s. This employee graciously let me sit in the primo seating section. And I remember his name, but I'm not going to say it. Anyway, that, that's what's happened here. Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. And while I was there, I could look up and say, oh, yeah, I was up. See the ceiling? Yeah, down a couple of rows from there. Yeah, that's great. Good spot. See the whole place. But now I can actually see. So it was a place of undeserved privilege. And that's what God has brought us into through Jesus, right? So we have peace with him. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Look at the implications. Now we can rejoice. We have peace with God, but we can rejoice when we run into problems and trials. Seriously? We can rejoice when we run into problems and trials, for we know they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. So even though God uses these hard times because we're at peace with him, we can be at peace with ourselves, at peace with other people, and he uses the hard times to shape us, to build strength of character, and that strengthens our hope of salvation because we're saved right now, but we will see the whole benefits in the future of being saved from our sin. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. And Holy Spirit brings peace when we need peace, right? While we were utterly helpless, Jesus came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people wouldn't be willing to die for an upright person. Who would you die for? Uh, Maybe a short list. We we were at a craft sale this fall, and and we saw this... um, a particular craft maker was making beautiful little notebooks and on the title it said, People to Kill, you know. So maybe, <laughs> it was a joke. It's a joke. And we didn't send that one to England because we didn't know if it would get through customs. But um, imagine if you made a little list of people to die for. It would probably be shorter than that list of people to kill, right? So we might die for someone who's especially good, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us, all of us, while we're still sinners. And this is life-changing. And so because we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Jesus, he'll certainly save us from God's condemnation. So remember, we're at peace with him. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we're still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. And here's the kicker. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Now we're at peace. The hostilities have ended. And it's not a ceasefire. God is not angrily glaring at us going, 
with a big hammer saying, if you make one false move, if you violate the conditions of this ceasefire, wham, you're obliterated. No. The Bible says that through Jesus, our friendship with God has been restored and we can know shalom in our inner lives and that shalom will extend in our relationships with other people. The other fascinating CBC News article that uh, I listened to this week was very intriguing because to me it demonstrates how this shalom works itself out in the lives of Christians. There was an article on uh, Tuesday afternoon um, that talked about uh, sex offenders, uh, a sex offender in uh, Regina actually, being surrounded and loved by a little tiny Mennonite church in Regina. And they formed something called a Circle of Support and Accountability. And it talks about, in the, the documentary, it talks about how an atheist sex offender met a retired Mennonite hospital administrator, who likes to garden, by the way, and they become friends. And the Mennonite gardener befriends the atheist sex offender, and these people come around him. And even after he goes back and forth to jail a couple of times, he doesn't really reoffend, but he's picked up on breaches and things like that. They just wait for him patiently to be released. And then when he comes out, they just love him up again. It's not intense therapy. There's some volunteer training, but basically they just befriend this guy. And it's fascinating. When they first go to visit him, everyone in the neighborhood knows where the sex offender lives. And when they go to visit him, their car the car full of peaceful Mennonite gardeners is pelted with stones by the neighbors because they don't want anyone hanging around this so-and-so sex offender. But they love him and care for him and support him and treat him like an actual human being in spite of what he's done and support him through his struggles to stay clean and continue in recovery. It's an up-and-down journey But that circle of friendship and accountability, that friendship and persistent investment in that man's life pays off. And it's fascinating that this volunteer organization, Circles of Support and Accountability, it's a Canadian-made restorative justice program for men and women who've committed serious sexual offenses. It allows the community to play a direct role in the restoration of sex offenders, probably the least likely people that we would want to have for Christmas dinner. But it it allows the community to play a direct role in the restoration, reintegration, and risk management of people who are often seen with only fear and anger. It's interesting that someone done research on this organization and the sexual reoffending rates for men who participate in this ministry are 80% lower than those who did not participate. To me, it's a beautiful picture of people who follow Jesus, who self-identify as Christ followers, reaching out to people, to broken people in a needy way and extending God's shalom. Now, this was the CBC preaching the gospel. They didn't realize it, but there was a little quote in there from the Mennonite gardener, the modest Mennonite gardener saying, well, 
We're just doing what Jesus would do. Very matter of fact. To me, it's a beautiful picture of what shalom can look like. And these people, these people, these convicted sex offenders, and other people like us, our lives look like Aleppo, full of rubble, just a mess. But someone comes along with the love of Jesus and just walks with us and persists with us. And all of a sudden, they help us see value in ourselves. And God uses that to transform us. It's a beautiful picture of peace the way God intended it to be. Closing song we're going to sing today is called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And it was written by uh, an American poet. His name was uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And uh, Mr. Longfellow uh, was married to, his wife's name was Fanny. They had five kids. And uh, one day, Fanny was doing a simple household task and her dress caught fire. She was enveloped in flames. She runs into Henry's study and they both frantically try to put out the flames that are consuming her. Fanny was so badly injured that she died the next day. And in fact, she was buried on their 18th wedding anniversary. Henry was badly hurt as well. And he was too ill and too overcome with grief to even attend his own wife's funeral. And in fact, this trademark long beard, he grew to hide some of the scarring after this household tragedy. Well, that Christmas of 1861 was pretty grim. And in his journal, Longfellow wrote, How inexpressibly sad are all holidays. 1862, he writes in his journal, I can make no record of these days. Better leave them wrapped in silence. Perhaps someday God will give me peace. And then he said, A Merry Christmas, say the children, but that is no more for me. 1863. Longfellow's oldest son, Charles, volunteers to join the Union Army in the American Civil War without his dad's permission. Is seriously wounded, and Longfellow can't say anything in his journal. His son eventually recovers from his wounds, and something happens on December 25, 1864. He wrote the poem, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, that we're going to sing in just a couple of minutes. And this theme of listening recurs throughout the poem. And as we sing these words, I want you to listen carefully to this sense of settled hope and peace that Longfellow has. This peace that works itself out, even in spite of all these family tragedies, national tragedies, he finds peace through the presence of God in his life.